Today's episode of the City Smag Podcast on the City of Smag Podcast Network is brought to you by Strava. I've been preaching for just a couple weeks now my thoughts about why I think it is the best fitness and training app. It's for athletes and it's by athletes and I've been using it for years. But in addition to their app and their website that connects runners and cyclists from all around the world, they have tapped into the podcasting game and they've been crushing it. Athletes Unfiltered is their show that launched last month and it's been sitting on the iTunes top, top charts for weeks. Episode 3 is out now and you won't want to miss it. The show dives into athletes that prove getting older doesn't necessarily mean getting slower or having to give up. I've always been fascinated by the type of people who find certain sports at a late age and then just absolutely thrive. In the latest episode, you have three of those examples. Gene has run 200 milers and has a marathon personal best of 254. That's a bit faster than me. Oh, and he's 70 years old. Patricia learned to ride a bike at the age of 38, and she's now in her 60s and has gone all in with the ultra-endurance mountain biking community, so kudos to her. If you're a Strava user, you see what I did there. And then there's Brad Huff, who is the oldest professional cyclist in U.S. men's peloton, and he recently announced his retirement. So you have to listen to these stories to see for yourself just how incredible these people are. Check it out today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast fix. And also, Sidious Mag podcast listeners still have the chance to try Strava's premium features on Summit. All you have to do is go to strava.com slash summit and use promo code Sidious. That's all lowercase, C-I-T-I-U-S, while purchasing an annual subscription and you'll get an exclusive discount. Once again, it's promo code Sidious, all lowercase, when you go to strava.com slash summit. Strava Summit, try it today. My guest for today's show is 2016 U.S. Olympic marathoner Jared Ward. This has been a long-awaited episode since we teased it about a month ago on our Instagram. Jared's family recently added a fourth child, so that's why we were delayed for a little bit. But congratulations to him and his wife. I had a lot of fun in my conversation with Jared. We exchanged messages actually a couple months back about doing a podcast. And now that he announced that he's running the Boston Marathon in April, we decided that the timing was right. So on this show, eventually we get into his preparations for Boston and his upcoming races. But we spent some time chatting about his balance in life. It's how he manages juggling his running career being a father and a husband, while also doing some coaching and some teaching at BYU. We also take a fun stroll down memory lane and hear some cool behind-the-scenes stories from the 2016 Olympics, which were his first Olympic experience, my first Olympic experience. So you get all that and more, plus your listener questions from Instagram. This was a good one, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So, let's start the show. All right, now we welcome on 2016 Olympian Jared Ward. Jared, the people have been waiting a couple of weeks for this episode. Uh, <laughs> we announced it, so uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's so good to be on and good to be chatting with you again, Chris. And uh, yeah, sorry for all these uh, bumps in the road making this one finally happen. But the, the bump in the road was your fourth kid, I think. Now that's right. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Hey, thank you. We are so pumped. She's, uh, we think she's perfect. Oh, absolutely. And so it's funny to me because I'm just thinking like paternity leave isn't something that you can take when you're training for the Boston Marathon uh, at like, or just like any sort of big race at an elite level. <laughs> well, that's what my wife had said. She said, you know, going into this pregnancy, she said, I'm a little jealous that you don't have some sort of job that that like anything changes when we have this baby. You know, I teach classes part-time at BYU. And uh, and so, you know, with part-time jobs, there's no benefits associated with it. And with, uh, you know, the running stuff, obviously it's just, you just keep running. And so we try to make it work and, uh, but it's been good. You know, she she's a champ. Um, 
she really takes care of these kids so well. And, and it's been a lot of fun. I, I got a treadmill a few weeks ago and put it in the basement so that now I can watch kids and run at the same time. <laughs> and uh, anyways, life's been so good. So we can't complain. So as, as you're, I guess, going through this with baby number four, has it gotten easier? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you know what to expect or, you know, I hear that little, uh, baby cry in the middle of the night and I think, oh yeah, I remember what that sounds like. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I don't know, it gets more, um, more normal, I guess, but we still, you know, you still have to adjust. And I guess the biggest thing is that the kids have to adjust to there being one more kid and the attention spread a little bit thinner, but, um, but yeah, it does get it does get easier in terms of all the adjustments you have to make. I guess that was one of the big questions that a lot of people submitted when we solicited questions on Instagram was just pretty much like, how do you keep this work life balance in addition to just having you know the teaching, the running, and now and being a father and a husband? Like, how does how how does your day look, and where do you how how do you spread out your time? Well, you try to prioritize it. And so I, you know, I look at the things that I need to be doing um, with my family and the time that I need to block out for them. And we really try to schedule that first. And then, and then I look at the rest of the day and say, you know, where I need to do training and where that fits in. And then, and then I fill in, you know, the, whether it's the coaching stuff or the teaching stuff or, or doing some kind of liaison, liaison fit that into the cracks and um and so sometimes it does become a priority thing and i just say you know what i you know i could put a little more time into my teaching but uh today i got to get the workout in and then just show up at the lecture and, and you know it'll work because i've taught it before um and so it does it takes prioritizing and and some things you know you have to decide which things you let fall through the cracks but i think for the most part um you know, I, uh, I enjoy, uh, I enjoy life without, uh, you know, a regular Netflix binge series. And I think that's like, you know, ultimately, um, if you want to do something, you can probably find the time to do it. And I'm recognizing that even, even with, you know, the, the last couple of weeks since the baby's come, you know, it's been a little bit less sleep at night and things and, you know, you still function and things still work. And I get a little tired in the middle of the day, but, but the workouts have still been fine and the mileage has been good. And, um, and I think I've been sharp enough. And so, I don't know, you, you do play a little bit of balance and, and, uh, but, but I think if you get the important things done first and you choose, choose things that you want to do and that you're excited about doing, then, uh, then you don't look at your day as, as a full day of, uh, tasks. You just look at it as a full day of fun things you have lined up and you get to go do life. Would it be a little harder, I guess, to, you know, make some of those sacrifices and decisions when it comes to work, uh, and, and running when you kind of have to, I guess, maybe assess, like say the trials were coming up and the trials are the big race that you're prepping for. And right now you're prepping for Boston. Would some of those sacrifices be a little harder to make knowing that there's an Olympic team on the line a couple of weeks later, whereas this time around you are prepping for Boston, you're hoping to do as well as you can, but in, in the sport, everyone is training for the Olympics. Absolutely. And I, and you hit it on the head and it, it becomes a little bit of a different game as I get closer and closer uh, to that training cycle, prepping for the Olympics. And I've talked to the guys, you know, everyone that I, you know, the employers, if you will, at BYU, and we've set up my schedule so that, Next fall, I have a pretty light teaching load. And then next winter, up until the trials are over, I don't teach at all. And they've been really flexible to kind of work those things around um, my needs, um, training as as a marathoner first, and then doing these other things that I like. And so, I, I man, I, I have the best people around me that I get to work with and work for um, that, that kind of understand the, the gravity of that Olympic year. And, and so we're certainly going to set up well for it. You were very heavy on the analytics that helped you prepare for the 2016 trials. And I guess going into that side of things for a second here, how has that kind of changed in your preparation for, I guess, Boston now and then in the lead up to the 2020 trials where do you have to, I think you've previously said that every runner is kind of different. So the way you would look at things for someone who qualified for Boston is different than you would look at things for your own training. As an athlete, 
because I guess there have been injuries along the way and you, I guess your times have changed. Do you also have to make adjustments in terms of like the, the analytics that you look at now in order to optimize, I guess, your performance? Yes, hundred percent. And, but, but I think the gold standard is, is just like you were highlighting is that first person experience. So, you know, it's, it's when I get out there and I'm running marathons and I'm experiencing marathons, that is gold. Um, and so for anyone, experience trumps all. And I think that, you know, I think the analytics and the research and some of that stuff did help me um, in terms of uh, getting a jump start into marathon running. You know, when I, when I hadn't run a marathon, the research means a lot to me and I put more stock into that. And after I've run four, five, six, seven, eight marathons, then I feel like I have enough personal data points that you kind of shift the focus there. And so, um, you know, as it relates to data and training, I think uh, that the data weighed in a lot heavier um, early on in my marathoning career. And I really credit some of the research that I did with giving me, really putting me in a position to qualify for that first Olympic team because the Olympic trials was my fourth race. And so at that point, I didn't have a lot of experience. And so I was relying on some of the things that I was researching and finding in the data. And now, you know, three, four years later, I have a few more marathons under my belt and some more experience at marathon training. And I understand my body a lot more. Um, and so the, uh, what the data says on average matters less and less relative to what I've experienced personally, as it relates to my training and my performance. And so, um, I do think it made a big difference. And I think now I've shifted a little bit more to have found the things that work for me. I, I feel like people forget the circumstances behind your very first marathon and, and running it in Chicago, I guess, because you didn't have, uh, it, there was the whole situation with the NCAA. What do you remember, I guess, about the biggest lessons you took away from that first marathon? You know, um, I remember like kind of this tunnel vision with two miles to go, almost felt like uh, my I was losing my peripheral vision. Um, I remember, you know, I remember crossing the finish line and being so glad to be done. Um, and they, they put me in a wheelchair and took me to the tent and I got out of my chair and into a chair in the tent and I had my backpack on the ground in front of me. And I thought, I feel nearly dead. And I like, there were muffins on the table and I kind of wanted to grab a muffin cause I was so hungry, but I thought like the, the thought of the energy required to just reach over and grab a muffin was like more than I wanted to do. And I thought. I need to get into my backpack and pull out my phone and call my wife because I might die. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and so, you know, and I got out, I got out my phone and I like started hobbling outside this tent. Cause I was like, I'm going to go lay down somewhere on the ground. And I remember someone with a golf cart out there was like, Hey, are you ready to go back to the hotel? I can drive you there. And I think I almost cried at the thought of someone driving me back to my bed in the hotel so I could lay down. Um, so it was, it was a whole new experience, but, um, and it was hard, but I think, you know, after you let those, those immediate after the marathon thoughts kind of, and feelings fade as you start feeling better, I started to feel excited about what I had done. And, and I already knew even before I raced the first marathon that I loved training for it. I liked training in college. I liked racing in college, but, but as we got into the longer tempos and the, the higher volume, I just thought this is what I'm built for. And I loved training for it. And so I, I knew that I would like it. Um, but then that, you know, then Chicago ended up, you know, being, it was the first marathon, but I got a trials qualifier there. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to be a marathoner after I finish this college, you know, my college track season. And, and I really, you know, you talked about the NCAA and the, the last season of eligibility and that, you know, there was kind of some, some drama there um, in that, in that after I had, had served a, a church mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I came back a little older. I ran a race, um, a parent coaches race when I was out with my younger brother who was in junior high at the time. And the NCAA said, hey, you're delaying enrollment and racing competitively to gain a competitive advantage over other athletes. And we're going to start your eligibility clock. So you've lost a year. And and, you know, and I, I recognize that that the rules there for good reason. And, and we don't want people entering the NCAA at age 25 after they've been training and competing and and trying to kind of do something there. But um, but certainly wasn't my intention. And um, 
but it's funny how like you know you know we talked about the data and the prep going into to my to my fourth marathon in the olympic trials and you know chris i don't know if i would have had the experience necessary to run well enough to make that team without that first marathon and so it's kind of one of those things where I really look at that like it was a blessing in disguise. Had I not lost my eligibility, I'd have been running cross country for BYU in fall of 2013 instead of my first Chicago marathon. And so my first marathon wouldn't have come until a year later, only, you know, what, 16 months ahead of the trials. And so I really looked at at that marathon as something that really set me up and gave me the opportunity to kind of swallow that marathon pill and internalize it and start thinking about how I was going to prepare for the trials. Yeah, I didn't know the aftermath story of your first marathon, so I found it totally interesting. And it, it is very similar to Meb's story, too. I think Meb ran New York. He he thought it was awful and swore it off and said, I'm never going to do another marathon again. And <laughs> goes on to medal at the Olympics. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You know, like a, uh, like a dog to his vomit, as they say, right? It's just, it's interesting how, like, something so... Um, so incredibly painful and like and trying right i think you know there's there's few things that i can think about at least in male life okay i just watched my wild my my wife uh not my wild wife but my perfect wife give childbirth a couple of weeks ago and that's amazing that's amazing but in terms of what i can relate to in 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 the world of hard things um it's you know a marathon at mile 22 is hard and and you you really find out what uh, what your mind's capable of. And while it's hard, and while in the middle of it, you can be thinking, I could be doing anything besides this right now and be happier. You finish it, and that feeling of accomplishment is uh, is incredibly powerful. And so it's funny how you know you can you can do something that's so hard, and then and then you can want to come back to it and say, you know what, that was hard, but I think I can do it better. And and you just want to do it better. How would you describe that feeling of accomplishment after the trials and snagging the third spot? The one that was up for grabs to so many people. Yeah, you know, I felt uh, it it was incredible. And and I felt super blessed. You know, I I've had I've had so many people, you know, that maybe a little further removed from the sport, um friends and family and stuff that will say, so are, are you going to do the next Olympics? And I want to say, yeah, where do I sign up? Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was incredibly tough and, um, and I feel super blessed to end up where I did because just like you said there, you know, there were 10 guys on my list that I thought, you know what, if one of these 10 guys made the team, I wouldn't be surprised. And, um, and so for me to end up in that spot, you know, where on the start line of the race, I don't know, I've probably given myself a 30 or 35% chance of making that team. And that was knowing my training and knowing my fitness and um, just because there's so many quality guys out there. And so it really, it really was amazing. You know, I felt, first of all, I felt lucky and blessed, but, um, but then I just felt so, I think, I think proud to have, to have done something, um, that culminated in that kind of uh, success for the for the people that had invested in my running throughout my whole life. You know, I, at the end of that marathon, I was thinking of high school coaches and and college coaches and trainers and physical therapists and mom and dad and brothers and grandma and grandpa and sister and like all these people that had really sacrificed in a real way for me to have the opportunity to compete at the Olympic trials and to go out there and you know, not even to go out there and make the team, but to have the experience of going out there and putting my, the very best race that I could forward as a service to those investments really meant something to me. And, um, and so I think at the end of the race, that's kind of what I was feeling when I was seeing wife and coach and high school coach and mom and dad and all these people, I thought, you know what, this was, this was something that we all did. And I was so, uh, I guess proud of myself for having been able to kind of get through a few tough miles as a service to those guys. Do you still view that one as the race that you've kind of, I think, in, like poured everything out? Because it, the results at the Olympics, six at the Olympics, is just, I, I would say equally or even more impressive than third at the trials when it was so wide open. So 
for you to put those two races together in that span of time, and also just, I guess, like those, those months afterwards, how did you kind of bottle that excitement up, but not just kind of like blow it all up and use some later in Rio? Yeah, you know, it, it was, it was very fast. You know, it felt like after the trials, it was okay, how fast can we get recovered and start this segment into the Olympics? And so 2016 really was a whirlwind year. Um, but as I reflect back on it, I think, you know, it, I don't know that I have a, a favorite experience in terms of which one of those marathons was more defining in my life, but there were aspects of each one of them that were, that were very defining. I think of, you know, the thought, you know, we talked about with the, with the trials and, and getting through those hard miles was defining in, in Rio, it was, it was me figuring out that even if at mile 16, I didn't know if I could make it to the end, I knew I could make it two more miles. And so it was, it was grinding out two more miles and getting to that next water bottle, taking a drink and saying, you know what, I don't know if I can make it eight miles, but I know I can make it two more miles to my next water bottle. And I think I learned something in the Olympics, um, in terms of being able to push myself to a new level um, just by focusing on the present moment and where I was and not worrying about what might or might not happen at the end. And, and so, you know, and, and that's just an example, but uh, I think the things, you know, it's funny to think about the Olympics and the, and the, you know, the big, huge um, coverage around the Olympics. And, you know, we get, we get media and exposure to this sport, like, like in no other time of the year. Um, but the reality is that, you know, in 15 years, it'll be me and my wife and my mom that remember that I went to the Olympics and they'll be on to a whole new set of, of Olympic athletes and new, you know, and, and I think the only things that, to me, that really survive from those experiences are um, what that shaped in terms of me as a person from the experiences that I had. And, and I, I feel so blessed to have had both of those experiences and really uh, really learned a lot from them. What does that look like? What did that race look like? Because we haven't nailed the technology yet to put a camera on you the entire time and <laughs> be able to watch that race from, from your perspective. And so I always enjoy hearing the stories from other runners because, you know, TV coverage isn't perfect. So when you decide that I'm going to focus on the next two miles at a time and you feel yourself, I guess, getting a little bit stronger or at least like being able to push through in those moments and you look around you made some very good improvement in terms of placing what was it what did that look like from from your vantage point are you just like seeing these bodies ahead of you and be like this guy doesn't have it i i think i can get him and just slowly chipping away what was it what was that like yeah yeah it you know it, it's amazing to compete on that stage and it's it, it was so fun to hear you know you hear like I don't know, 120 different languages, you know, throughout the race as people are all cheering for, for the, you know, the representatives from their countries. It was cool. But then, you know, then I'd see someone with an American flag and, um, and that, you know, that was moving. And so I'm seeing some of that in the race, but, but after that mile 16 point, when I was really focusing on water bottle, the water bottle, um, up until about 20 miles, then the focus became, my eyes would look up and I'd say, okay, I can catch that guy. You know, I don't know if I can make it all the way to the finish line, but I know I can catch that guy. And so I would just catch the next guy. And then, um, and then I'd look up and say, all right, I can catch that guy. And, um, you know, Chris, I remember seeing one guy starting to come back and it was probably around mile 22. And as I got closer, I realized that it was a Jersey from Kenya. And I thought, well, who's this is coming back to me from Kenya. And as I got closer, I saw that it was Stanley B. Watt. And I thought, you know, at the time, I thought that he was the, probably the number two guy in the world. I'd given Kipchoge the number one spot, but I thought Biwat was really, in my mind, um, at the time, the favorite for the silver medal there. And uh, and as I got closer, I thought, I'm going to pass Stanley Biwat. This guy's run 204 for the marathon. You know, his, his PR is like, you know, he's finishing these marathons two miles before I'm finishing marathons if we're comparing just straight up time. And, um, and I thought, I'm going to pass Stanley Biwa. And then uh, I was probably about 10 steps from him. And he just steps off the road and rips off his bib and drops out. <laughs> and I remember thinking, no, you can't drop out until I pass you. After I pass you, you can do whatever you want. But, um, but you know, some, some experiences like that where really for me, I was so happy to be there. Like just, just taking it all in. And, and I felt blessed to leave that race 
after a good finish feeling like I belonged. And, you know, I hope the, I hope I have the opportunity to go back um, and compete on that stage again, because I think my mentality would be a little bit different in terms of confidence and, and feeling like I belong there. Um, but man, I was just so happy to be there. Were you able to keep count of how many guys were ahead of you, even as you're like picking everyone off? No, it was just a one at a time thing for me. And, you know, I, I can go back and look at it on paper. And I think there were about 10 guys or so between mile 16 or 17 in the finish line. Um, it, but, but no, I, in fact, I didn't know exactly where I was. Um, but as I turned the corner into the straightaway, I'd passed two guys right before the corner and I thought, okay, I, I'm pretty sure I'm in the top 10. Um, and so, you know, I came and, and really that was the goal for the race. I had, I had tried to set the goal so many times to medal and it, but it just wasn't the right goal. Cause every time I'd think, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to write up on my mirror, after I had qualified, I think if I'm going to write up on my mirror, my goal is to, to get a medal. I would get, I'd feel so anxious. I think, you know, oh man. So I'd start thinking of all the names of the people in that race and who I'm going to have to beat. And, um, and it ended up being a goal of top 10 that I was still excited for, and it still got me out of bed in the morning, but it was something that I felt confident about. I thought, I think I can do that on the right day. So when I crossed the line, you know, I was probably as excited as if I had medaled because this was a goal that I thought about. And this was something that, um, that I'd been working for. And, um, anyway, so, so it really, you know, it was just this, you know, it was like my own little mini medal experience at the finish line where I had, I had achieved what I'd set out to. And some of the media made fun of me for being the most excited sixth place finisher they'd ever seen. But, um, but I was, I was excited and, and I thought, you know, my, my hard work had been worth it for me. Is that how you keep yourself accountable is writing it on a, on a mirror? That's how I do it. Yeah. Like a little, like a, like a marker, whiteboard marker and just throw it up on the mirror. What's on the mirror right now? So, uh, last year I had set a goal to run sub 210 marathon. And then I didn't end up running a spring marathon uh, on some injury. And I ended up choosing New York as a later marathon next year to give myself a little bit more time to get ready for it. Um, and again, you know, this year, I don't know that I have the perfect marathon. You know, I, I'm going to run Boston and, and so much is dependent upon weather there. And I, I don't know if I'm going to run a fall one or not, but, but uh, 209 is still up there because uh, that's something that I, you know, when I look at my Olympic trials performance in the heat and my Rio performance in the, in the hot humid, I really think if I can, if I can have a performance like that on the right day, on the right course, um, I think I can run 209. And so that's, that's kind of been my beacon for the last little while. And with all the criticism, of course, you had the Instagram post where you kind of outlined like why, <laughs> why I guess the, the whole hoopla about the 210 isn't stupid. It isn't like, I guess, like rightly justified or I guess like you can you can explain it again but uh is if you don't hit 210 does it really I guess like I, I know it's it's a personal goal but does it really matter going into the trials where I guess at, the, at that point is just to compete right right and I think that's the thing that you know is is hard about our sport you know if, if you look at if you look at basketball and you look at um you know you could look at you can look at PRs and marathon running, and then you can look at triple doubles in basketball. And you can look at James Harden and say, "Hey, you know what? He's not even. I guess no triple doubles now. He's not passing the ball, but but he's sure scoring a lot of points." And you can look at statistics that way. But then if you put him in a game, you know, say against the Golden State Warriors, and he's got some good defense on him, and he's got some good, you know, he's got some some offense going the other way, then you can look at that as a casual basketball fan and you can say, Hey, you know what? He only scored 32 points, but that's pretty good even for James Harden because it was against the Golden State Warriors in running. I feel like there's, there's not as many people who are um, as acutely in tune to what's going on. And so when someone goes to Boston and they win in 210, you know, on paper, that's, you know, eight minutes or nine minutes slower than the world record. And so we say, Oh, what happened at Boston? You know? And, and it turns out that if the weather was hot or there were some headwinds or something, it makes things a lot different. And so, so I totally agree with you. And I think, I think that when we, when we get critical of, of the, the men's marathon running in America, it's maybe a little misrepresented now, certainly compared to what the women are doing, um, the men are just not as deep. I mean, the, the women 
the women on paper have, you know, three, four, maybe five ladies that are like, you know, closer to in that caliber of like a Galen Rupp type runner, whereas the men's side has Galen Rupp and then there's a gap. But, but I don't think that that gap is as big as, as maybe on paper, just because of, of some of these course conditions and where guys are choosing to race. And if you want to be a marathon runner professionally in America, you're going to look at, at, you're going to look at New York and you're going to look at Boston. A lot of times it's good financial opportunities. You're going to maybe look at Chicago, which can be a faster course. Um, but we're just not going to get on those, you know, those Frankfurt, Germany courses, or, you know, these, these Rome or Paris or, you know, London kind of courses and still be able to have as much of a, um, a professional aspect to, to being able to make the money and, and, and keep running. And so, so yeah, I don't think, I don't think it's quite, um, you know, as, as dispersed as maybe it looks on paper, but I, you know, but so, I mean, I guess that's a little bit of a tangent, but that's what I think. I think I can run 209. I, I think there's probably a couple other guys, um, besides Galen in America that can run 209 on the right day. And, and so, uh, so I'm excited to work towards that. And while that's a goal, it doesn't mean that Boston will be a failure if that's not the day. You know, if we show up at Boston and there's headwinds and it's hot, then I'm going to say, well, you know, it's a time, it's a day to race and we'll just see what time comes. But, but I certainly do have the time in the back of my mind and someday I want to be on a course and in, in the right day where, where the time happens. See, I got some flack for not pressing Scott Fobble as hard when he, you know, classified New York as like a good day for, you know, you and for, for him. So I guess like, my, it, because someone else raised, you know, look how fast Mary Katani ran her second half. And so it's like, you can, yes. you can throw all these different stats my way. And so I guess, do you, do you consider New York a good day and why should people also, you know, see it in the same view? Yeah, I, I did. And, and here's a couple of reasons. One is that I feel like the American athletes on the men's side worked really well together through that race. I ran, I mean, I ran probably 22 miles shoulder to shoulder with Chris Derrick. And, and I love that. I love that. I feel in these races that, um, there's some sort of team aspect to it. Like it, you know, people could look at it on paper and say, Hey, this was a, this was an overall race. And then this was an American race. And I don't think that that's what it was from the inside. I think it was Americans working together to see how high we could get collectively in the overall race. And so, um, so that's point number one, point number two, for me, for, for me personally was, I did think it was a big win. And, and part of that is because of the buildup that I had, you know, I was, I was injured a lot of September. Um, you know, I, I had pulled a hamstring right at the beginning of September and lost, you know, probably four weeks of training. You know, I was doing some cross training workouts and running 30% of my weekly volume, trying to get things back up and, and nearly pulled out of the race. In fact, I called up David Monty, um, who's the, the coordinator for the athletes there, the elite athletes and, and just said, Hey, I don't think that I'll be ready for this race. I don't think you should have me come out. And, and he just said, Hey, why don't you just try it? If you feel healthy, why don't you just come try it? And if you only make it 13 miles, then, then so be it. And so I was like, well, if David Monty says, come and play, I'm just going to go play and see what happens. And so given that my training was really, I had a good August and then September off, and then I had a good October, um, but it was really broken up. Um, it was a win for me going into the race saying, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just going to run it one mile at a time. Kind of like that Rio break down and say, you know, if it, if it ends somewhere along here, then it ends. And so I was pleased with that on a personal level. And it, and it made me excited to come back home and think about if I could be healthy through a Boston buildup and, um, and really race at a hundred percent, then, you know, maybe I can be a little bit faster. And, and so I, I, I saw a lot of good there. Now it's not, you know, if you're going to say, Hey, but look at the American ladies and I'm going to say, yeah, you know, they're, they are on another, it's another level. Okay. And so, um, you know, if you're going to, if, if the baseline of comparison is what are our American women doing, then, then yeah, you know, the, the men are not keeping up right now. Um, but I do think there's some good things happening. And I do think that, that New York was a win day for, for American men distance running. With the 2020 trials being so wide open again, even more wide open than 2016 was, um, I guess what would be, and there's so many different names that could end up in that top three and on the team for uh, Tokyo. We were kind of, I guess, spoiled to come away with an Olympic medal in 2016 and you finishing in the top 10. 
what would be a good day for the United States at the 2020 Olympics with the, the, the pieces that we have right now? Is it too, I mean, it might be a little early to say, but. Yeah, yeah you know, it, the Olympics is just so, it's so interesting. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, there's so many moving factors in terms of, of what other athletes go and, and how, you know, you get, you get the best athletes all in the same race. Um, but so many people are racing do or die on top three. And so it's just a different race. Whereas it, you know, I think at a, say a London marathon, there's some, some merit, um, to racing for sixth place, but there's not a lot of people doing that at the Olympics. And so it's just a different game. Um, and I think a lot of it just depend on where the pieces fall. But that said, I think, you know, Galen, uh, Galen's marathon last year was at, or last round at Rio was his second marathon. So, you know, he's, he still had some learning to do at that event. And, um, and, you know, I hope to see that he recovers well from this, uh, this surgery that he's had and he's back on top. But I think, you know, he's had some good experiences since then. And, um, and, and I don't see a reason to not, um, to not be able to hope for a medal from him, you know, God willing and all things go well. Um, and then, you know, when, when you look at, you know, when I went into the Olympics in 2016, my PR was 212 high, you know, you could call it 213. And, um, you know, you look at that on a descending order list and that's, that's not super impressive in terms of world rankings or how many fast marathons we get every year. And so I, you know, and then, somehow I end up sixth at the Olympics just by going out there and, and chipping away at it and running my pace and my race and trying to, trying to take advantage of people fading late in hot, humid conditions. And Tokyo is going to have that same opportunity for conditions. And, and frankly, a course that features a pretty big hill over the last couple of miles. And so I think that us can send a team and say, you know what, we should, uh, we should look to plug our, our guys all in the top 10 and, and, um, and that would be an awesome day, but I think I don't think that's an unrealistic goal for things like Olympic competition. With running being such an individual sport, uh, just kind of in in general, you get to the Olympics. Everyone's got you know a USA kit on. Are there any behind the scenes stories of just I guess the way you Meb and Galen either communicated either on that day or in the lead up to the race um, that you kind of like hold? Uh, as something very special from, uh, you know, this being your first Olympics, Galen had been there before and medaled on the track. Meb had, you know, has been to enough. Did they share anything with you ahead of that race that you found very valuable? Yeah, yeah. You know, particularly with, with Meb there, I, you know, I've always known Galen and I feel like I've, I've got to know him uh, a lot better primarily or I guess starting right after that race was over, you know, I was talking with him after the race a little bit um, and a little bit later, you know, that, that Olympic week. And then, and now having, you know, as he's moved up to the marathon, more opportunities to be at the same race as him. And I've got to know him a lot better. Um, he's an incredible dad and, uh, and, you know, a, a religious guy and, and, and a great person to be around. He's fun to be around. I feel but, like um, but that not a lot of people see about, about Galen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I, I don't know, this may be speaking frankly, but I think, I think if every other time that, uh, that, that I was put in front of the media, if someone was asking me about drugs or allegations or things like that, I might get a little bit sheltered too from, from just, you know, I just put up my walls and, and do my thing. Um, but, but he is, he's a nice person and, uh, and, I, and I have a lot of respect for how committed to the sport he is um, and how hard he works and, uh, and the kind of person that he is at home. Um, but then Meb, you know, Meb's kind of the, uh, you know, and in terms of especially what you see in the media and things, Meb's, Meb's friend to everybody. And he really is a friend to everybody. I mean, it's, it's incredible to be around him at something like the New York city marathon where he's getting stopped by every person and the amount of names that he remembers from just people that he's seen one off another time. Like he, he has this uncanny ability to remember people. And I think part of it's just because he cares about people so much. Um, and so, yeah, Meb, I was, I, I talked with Meb, he would, I would, I would wake up in the morning to a text from Meb, um, months out of Rio, just saying, Hey, just checking in on you. How's training going? How you doing? What can I do for you? And, um, and that's not uncommon to get from Meb. You know, he's just, he, I think he, 
I think he must be like the, uh, the big brother to like a thousand people out there and he just watches out for all of us. But, um, I do, I remember warming up with him before the race, um, and thinking, man, I'm warming up with Meb for the Olympics. This is pretty incredible. And I was asking him about how he thought the race was going to go out and where he thought big moves were going to happen. And, um, and he was, you know, just sharing his experiences with me and, and it was really, really cool. So, uh, fun to be on the start line with uh with heroes of mine representing you know the country that means so much to me what another aspect about your olympic experience that i kind of enjoyed watching from afar because i that was my first time in at an olympics and i wanted to really take everything in i wanted to see the sports that you know you never really get to see in the united states i think the first event i covered while i was out there was like a table tennis event and you were an olympic rookie you were there for the opening ceremonies you didn't decide to stay at altitude up until the last second what was the most enjoyable part i guess of your your lead up to uh the olympics i guess up to your race because you were able to go to all these other events do you have any really funny stories to share from there oh man i just like you i i wanted to take it all in and i loved it like that was it was so fun to be out there in fact the the Saucony team so my, my title sponsor had been kind of watching from afar and, and they confessed to me after the fact that everyone would be in the office talking about these different pictures that I was posting. And they'd be like, well, it looks like Jared's just happy to be there. I mean, he's having so much fun. We'll see what happens when it gets to race day. But, um, but that was the attitude I had. I thought, you know, I, I wasn't going to, my wife was pregnant at the time with our third and she, she was born about two and a half weeks after I got back from the Olympics. And so, um, it was, it was, uh, I don't know. It was hard for me to leave my wife at that time with two kids and super pregnant, but you know, she was with her family. They were taking good care of her. Um, and I felt, felt comfortable with that. But you know, when I first qualified, I remember that the day I qualified, they said, okay, when are you traveling? Are you going in for the opening ceremonies? And, and I kind of got the grips of the schedule and everything. And I said, Oh no, there's no way that I'm going to go in two and a half weeks before my race. And my coach was standing right there coach Eistone, who had made two Olympic teams. And he said, hang on, we're going to think about that. And he pulled me back and talked with my wife. And it was really my coach and my wife that said, you need to go to the, the opening ceremonies. And if you're going to travel all the way down there for the opening ceremonies, I don't know that you should travel back. We think you should just stay there. You should enjoy it. You should take it in. And, and coach just said, hey, you, know, you, can't, uh, you, you can't treat experiences like this too lightly. And you never know what the future holds or doesn't hold, but you know, you know what you have coming and, and we need to, you need to experience that. And so it was really them that encouraged me to, to just go and have fun. And so I did, I would go down every morning. I wake up in the Olympic village. I'd go on my run, I get some breakfast and then I go down to the, to the suite for athletes there. And I'd be like, okay, what tickets showed up this morning for what, it, you know, they, they would give, I think a lot, the athletes would be gifted tickets to events that hadn't sold out or things like that. And so I'd just go down and see what tickets were there. And I'd say, oh, okay, today it's going to be women's sevens rugby and it's going to be team handball or whatever. And I'd get those tickets and I'd go and, and I'd, I'd go with a buddy in the village or, and man, I had so much fun. Like it really, you know, the Olympics is a unique uh, setting to watch but it's, you know, it's, it's just as unique from the inside in terms of just how, how many people and cultures and things are coming together. And um, everybody's nice. You know, everybody is there because they want this, this moment of the world's coming together and competing in this true spirit of sport. Like, and I think, um, man, it just, in, like, in so many ways, it just embodies what we are as a people. Um, after it strains out all the crap that we are as people, you know, in between these Olympic cycles. And so it was just so cool. Is there any friendship that you struck up? And like, first off, who was your roommate while you were out there? Because I, I one special thing I, I like to hear about the uh, professional athletes and when they end up on these national teams is just the the uncommon the, the the two friendships that you wouldn't expect like john nunn <laughs> walker is like really good friends with a bunch of the sprinters and you just wouldn't usually piece yes. those two people together in the same setting do you have like i'm, I'm trying to think i'm going to take a wild guess and think you and someone like devin allen like you guys probably <laughs> too often. you know i uh so john nunn was my roommate okay and so i felt like 
when I palled around with him, he would just introduce me to everybody because he did. He, he, I think it was his third Olympic team and he knew all these guys. Um, but, but I'll tell you some people that I was really impressed with. Uh, so like Justin Gatlin is nice to everybody. Like he's like this, you know, and I, and I know, you know, he's, he can, he's a, a controversial name in the sport in terms of, of drug tests and things like that. Um, but in terms of just like being a nice person and watching out for everyone, man, he is such a nice guy. And I felt like every time I saw his face, it was like a big smile and a big what's up and what do you need? Where are you going? You know? Um, so he was you know, definitely a big brother on the team. I hang out with some of the marathoners from some of the other countries um, that train in the U S um, and, and went on some runs with them. Um, but man, and then, you know, a lot of the distance guys, I always love hanging around Bernard Lagat. You know, he's, you know, some of these, these guys, like, I, I feel like, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I have a, the, the family life aspect going on, you know, kids and things like that, that, that I can, uh, you know, have, have some common ground and relate with people like him or Meb really well. And, and, and that they've been my my running heroes. It was just so crazy every day walking out of out of my room and into the other rooms there and being like, "Hey, I'm just you know sharing this space with all these people that I've looked up to as a runner for so long," and um, and we're all just kicking it and eating the same food and you know sleeping in the same building and I don't know. It was it really was fun. So where are we at right now in terms of Boston prep? So uh, we are. 10 weeks out come Monday. So, well, I guess in a, depending on when this airs, <laughs> but I'm, I'm about 10 weeks out now and I'm um, feeling good about things. I think my, my mileage this week um, is going to be about 110 and uh, that's probably higher than any week I hit in all of 2018. And I, you know, I had some injuries uh, early on in the year with a high hamstring pull and then a mid hamstring pull in the middle of, September. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely had some bumps in the road last year, but I think I've got that sorted out. I, you know, I went out to the Olympic training center and stayed out there for a few days and worked with some of their doctors and, and got some new exercises and, um, and things. And I think, I think I figured out, um, how to keep myself healthy with at least the injuries that I've struggled with over the last couple of years. And so I feel healthy. Um, the training's been really good. I've been working out with the BYU guys here and, and they're fast right now. Um, we did 1200s earlier this week and, you know, it's with a bunch of guys that are running, you know, 851 and 852 and 853 for the 3k. So they're moving right now. Um, and then we did a long tempo yesterday, um, where I got to run with them and then, and then add on a little at the end. And so I feel like I, I got great training here and, um, and things are shaping up well. And so, you know, the game for me is just to try to get enough sleep that I can stay recovered and, uh, and try to stay healthy up into Boston. And I, and I'm pretty optimistic, Chris, I really am. So this not being, this isn't your first Boston marathon because you ran it in 2017, I believe, right? Correct. Yeah. Good what memory. Last year's race, I guess, watching that from afar, <laughs> you know, there were, a, you know, it, it's funny when, when there's crazy conditions like that, there's always a piece of me that says that wants to know where I could have finished in a race like that. Right. Where, you know, 70% of the professional athletes drop out of the race because of the conditions and whatever. Um, and it's just cold and, and tying up. And, and so a piece of me looks at it and thinks, Hey, could I have done well there? Could I have, could I have snuck, you know, towards that podium? Um, but, uh, but man, the bigger piece of me was thinking, I am so glad that I'm not out there, that I'm watching this race on my computer. I'm, I'm happy to live tweet it this time and uh and we'll try to run it we'll roll the dice on weather this year so before we get into some listener questions um when it, when it comes to boston and having run it once uh once before i guess what was the one aspect or part of the race that you kind of want to correct or really improve upon this time around um man that's a good question i i felt like i was so smooth through gosh like the first 10 or 15 K um, and then I I really just didn't feel like I I felt like I was maybe healthier than I had been for say Rio I you know I was coming down with pubic bone stress reactions right before the race but I was so fit going into Rio and I just didn't trust my 
fitness quite as much. And so I'm excited to hopefully go in trusting my fitness and think, okay, if I can get out to that same 10, 15 K start that I had in, in 2017 and then be feeling good and ready to just keep moving on that. I, I think Boston can be a good course for me. I mean, I like the kind of the net downhill nature over the first half. I feel like I'm a pretty resilient runner and a good downhill runner. Um, and so I think, I think if I train right, I can be prepared to take advantage of some of that um, downhill terrain and then, you know, and then get to the heartbreak hills, hopefully feeling okay. And then you get up those heartbreak hills and then, and then the plan would be, Hey, cut it loose on the downhill and, and roll the last 10 K. So, you know, I, I have thought about the race a lot. There's so many, you know, there's so many memories when you run Boston, just, you know, where the crowds are and the noise levels and, going through West Wellesley and, and stuff like that, that like I'm excited for again. Um, but I'd say that's, that's kind of the hope on the race plan. All right. We'll get into some of these listener questions. Now, first one that stands out to me, any mustache grooming tips. And I, <laughs> because I can't grow a mustache at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I don't know this thing. This mustache just grows so fast. I feel like I can shave it off. And, you know, a week and a half later, I could have something that I could call a mustache back. And um, so I don't know. It's just it's keeping it tamed enough that my wife doesn't feel like I look like the Lorax when I uh, when I wake up in the morning. So uh, I don't know. When did you decide that the mustache was your thing and that you were going to you were going to go with it and keep it? So I think it was in college. Uh, at cross country nationals, they would have this stashies for Nashies mm -hmm. competition, right? And um, being that I was on the BYU team, where a lot of us had served church missions, we were a couple years older than the rest of the NCAA on average, and so I think that gave us the advantage of by age being able to grow decent mustaches. And so I think it started there, where I would just grow a mustache every year for nationals in cross country, and then started to be a thing where, well, maybe I should grow a mustache for every race that I'm really serious about. And that can be my, you know, okay, the mustache is coming in and I'm ready to race. And then eventually it became the, uh, the token that I was recognized for. And so now I feel like if I shave my race, I'd lose my endorsements. No one, in the, if I shave my mustache, I'd, every race I'd lose, you know, I'd lose followership and I'd lose endorsements. And anyways, so now it's a, now it's a branding thing. There were a couple of questions in the comments section here about your footwear at, in New York. Um, and a lot of people, I guess, like, what can you share about the Saucony shoe that you were wearing uh, during that race? You know, I'm glad you asked that. Um, there's, you know, and, and frankly, there's not a lot I, I can share. There's, but I'll share everything that I know. So I, I don't know much about the shoe. I, you know, I've been interested in, in Saucony trying some things um, in this kind of, I think, the shoe, the shoe world right now is in an interesting place um, for running shoes. I think that you know we we um, we're experiencing one of those things where, as we look back on these years in the coming decades, we're going to look at the changes these years like they were pretty drastic in terms of footwear for road racing. You know, almost like we can look back at you know, maybe the eighties in terms of spikes and tracks and, and how times got faster because surfaces changed and, and footwear got a lot better. And so I think we're in the middle of one of those times and, and, um, certainly Saucony is coming out with some incredible stuff. And, and I asked them to, to try some things for me and they sent me some shoes that I really didn't know much about. Um, and, uh, and I tried them out and thought, you know what, I like these, so we'll give them a go. And, um, and I'm excited to work closely with Saucony over the the next, probably starting you know next month or or later this spring as they uh, continue to develop this shoe and and hopefully I'll have something to share and and they'll share something with me here before long. But they felt great. You know I think that one of the biggest things about those shoes was I felt so good running downhill. Um, every time I was running downhill, I felt like I could just cruise a little bit and that the shoes would take care of all the pounding for me. And so I, I loved the cushioning. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I liked them, but that's, you know, I really don't even know much about them. It's just, uh, it's just shoes that I wore once and they kind of worked for me. So I hope to be able to wear them again. 
See, the, the crazy part is, like, people want you to dispel this rumor that they were a pair of Nike 4%, which is, <laughs> which is crazy. It's like, why would anyone do that? I, I guess, like, there was a guy in Dubai who just painted over his <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Not that silly to, to do something like that. The same thing happened with, like, Des when she won Boston. Everyone was wondering what was on her feet and, because they were just yes. all blacked out. And so um, let's just dispel the rumor. They weren't Nikes. <laughs> These yes, these were these were Saucony made shoes. Um, you know, piecing together a lot of the the pieces of technology that Saucony has been working on for a long time. And they, you know, Saucony has an incredible R and D team. I like I I think they make amazing shoes. I've loved working with with R and D and design over there. Um, I I really think these are some of the best guys um, in the in the market space. That they have developing these products and, and creating them right right at Saucony and so no these were a Saucony shoe a Saucony made shoe um, with some new Saucony tech um, that that they really haven't told me about yet and so uh, yeah I, I'm hoping we can talk about these shoes and and I'll know what I'm talking about before long. Um, Robbie on Instagram asks, "What were your high school PRs and what was your training like in high school?" And then I'm kind of curious to piggyback off that. What was the recruiting process like for you to end up at BYU? I, I feel like there's not too many people know the background of, uh, of how you ended up there. So uh, high school, I got up to about 35 or 40 miles a week was all, and I struggled with shin splints all the time. So I was, I was back and forth between 35 to 40 miles and cross training, you know, at least once a month, um, just trying to keep those shin splints at bay. Um, and, uh, you know, my progression, it was really – my start of my junior year in, in high school where I decided to um, stop playing soccer and focus on running. And so that's where my running um, got quite a bit better, you know, as I uh, was going to practice every day and, and, uh, and trying to work on speed and things like that. And so I progressed through college or through high school to the point where by the end of high school, I was being recruited at least by in-state schools. Um, I ran four sixteen for the mile and uh, nine, 05 for 3200 that 3200 was at sea level so not you know certainly not crazy by uh today's standards for what some of these high schoolers are running but um but well enough to to kind of be able to look at the next level and then committed with with coach Stone at byu um i just i love my visit there i love uh the the idea of him as a coach um and uh and just felt really at home there it's a you know it's a it's a private school, um, you know, owned and, uh, by the, by the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is my faith. Um, and so, you know, there were a lot of things about it that just seemed really at home to me, um, in terms of, of code and conduct and things like that. And so committed there, served a mission for the church for two years in Pittsburgh, and then came back to coach Stone about 20 pounds overweight and, uh, started getting back in shape. Um, and then, you know, working with him through college was uh, was gradually increasing from my 40 miles a week in college or in high school to probably 90 miles a week by the end of college. And then it's so I your your progression at BYU was was fantastic. What did you get down to for the mile? I ran 403 um, and that was my sophomore year. And I, I don't know that I've run one. I, I certainly didn't run one at sea level since then. I think there's always going to be a piece of me that's going to wonder if I could have broken that four minute mile. Yeah. And it's funny because I guess on marathon legs, you just, that's the last thing you want to think of is just going that yes. fast. Um, but yes. I always joke around with them. It's like, you gotta, you know, you're not training for marathon anymore. Go for, go for that sub four. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a story, wouldn't it? Right. Especially. <laughs> um, someone else wants to know, I guess, uh, what is your I just had what is your philosophy on quality versus quantity for both elites and for newbies to the marathon? Oh man, it's going to be maybe you won't like this answer, but it's going to be a little different for everybody and I think, you know, there are so many training programs that seem to work. I think the key is finding one that that kind of works for you and then sticking to it. My philosophy is probably a little bit tilted in the quality um you know, the quality argument, very, you know, linear type training where, um, 
you know, you, you get volume in, but it's just not, it's not volume for the sake of volume. It's kind of how much volume can you handle and still put those miles together as, as semi-quality miles. So I don't know I, you know, I'm racing marathons at, at five minute pace about, and, and I would say on a marathon training week, I'll probably have, oh, maybe 10 miles. Well, so let's say, I don't know, two or three or four miles at like 30 seconds faster than marathon pace. And then I'll have another maybe 10-ish miles at, you know, 10 seconds faster than marathon pace. And then I'll have another, you know, 10-ish or 20-ish miles at marathon pace. And then the rest of them are probably a minute to a minute and a half slower than marathon pace. And that's kind of how I structure training. That sounds like a good plan. Um, <laughs> all right. Final questions that I ask every guest. So the first okay. one is what is the, the funniest drug testing story you've got? Uh, funniest drug testing story, man. I remember walking into drug testing at, after the Olympic trials race, it had been, 80 degrees in LA and they handed me a cup and I said, it's going to take me a minute before I'm going to, before I'm going to be able to get this out. And I drank 15 of those, uh, pint bottles. So that's like two cups, two cups short of two gallons oh of water before I could barely get them their 90 milliliter sample. And I didn't pee again until 10 o'clock that night. And so, um, I don't know. I think one of the ironies of the drug testing as it relates to marathon running is after you run real hard for two hours, they uh, hope that you're ready to pee <laughs> and all that water's gone. <laughs> Next question I ask every guest, what's the meanest thing you've read about yourself on letsrun.com? Oh, man. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like people are pretty nice to me. I don't know. Well, I wonder. They, uh, you know, they. There must have been a. What's that? that? There must have been a thread about the Instagram post that you had after New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there probably was. I don't know. So I guess. Uh, I guess uh, when. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, man. I. I. I was gonna say. I guess when people get a little critical of the the sport in general, I can get a little. I can get a little hyped up about that. But I think. Probably it's uh, it's it was all the the hate posts on you know when I was at BYU and cross country was running well you could you just know that it was going to show up on Let's Run that these uh, these twenty however old BYU guys are just like breaking the system and and I always wanted to be like listen if you saw what I was eating at Pittsburgh when I was on my mission and if I could I I probably should just get on those threads and I should post a picture of myself <laughs> when I came home from my mission and you can see the fat hanging off of my face and and say hey I don't know that this is uh is part of the training program if, if it was good <laughs> right yeah if it was if it was good to take off time for uh for running then uh then Colorado would sit people out for two for two years before they started him in college right it's just not <laughs> it's not perfect Anyway, um, next one is if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, they could be fictional, they could be real. Um, assuming they could hold a conversational pace with you, where would this run take place and who would it be with? <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard to imagine running with like Christ through Israel. Um, I would certainly love to, uh, to have a conversation with him. Um, but man, in terms of just like, just heroes through history i don't know i grew up i grew up like um loving watching you know thinking about the idea of playing soccer with pele and that would be a pretty fun run for me to go on you know just because i you know i i dreamed about him as a sports hero through uh through a lot of my younger years and so i don't know maybe a run with pele through uh through the brazil forest or something Meb is also like a huge Pele fan. I think I think him and his brother like, is he really? Yeah, yeah. And there was something last fall where I think Pele was supposed to come to New York. It might have been like ahead of the New York City Marathon, and they were going to meet up for the first time. But I'm not sure if it happened or not. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Final question I ask every guest has nothing to do with running. You get 25 half court shots. If you make one, you win 25 million dollars. If you don't make any, 
you go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt these basketball shots? Absolutely not. Maybe from the free throw line. <laughs> yeah, that's a smart answer. <laughs> you should hear how many people say that they would take the shots. It's it's crazy. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> Jared, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, I'll catch up with you, I'm sure. Do you have any, I guess, races on the schedule that are coming up? Uh I I'm gonna I'm gonna do some tune up racing at least. Um there's a road to gold race in Atlanta. Right. ahead of the the trials so a little test on the trials course so i'll do that one as a tune-up and i'll probably pick one other race um to do as a tune-up probably between now and boston kind of depends on fitness and, and when i feel like my legs are ready nothing as huge as like a, a really competitive half marathon though right uh it could be could be it just you know it depends on what we decide in terms of when i need that sharpener so i I don't necessarily, you know, a New York half marathon would be fine. You know, I think in, in the right scenario, or I could go do something like a smaller half marathon in, in Florida. There's, there's a good one there. And so there's a, there's kind of a few in my sights and we'll just have to choose where it fits the schedule. Just right. Awesome. Well, we wish you all the best of luck in training and uh, we'll see if we can catch up uh, when you're in Boston. Hey, that sounds so perfect. Thanks, Chris. Many thanks to Jared for taking the time to do that interview. This weekend is the Millrose Games, and I will be in attendance at the Armory in New York City. I will most likely be at Coogan's before the races, so if you want to pop by to say hello, or if not, you can just scope me out at the Armory. I'll be around, I'm sure. Uh, I'll just be hanging around, trying to collect a couple interviews, maybe doing a little bit of writing. You can always tweet at me, at Chris Chavez, or at Sidious Mag. For any suggestions you have on who you'd like to hear on the podcast. Also, if you shout us out on your Instagram story by tagging at SidiousMag, we will repost it and all the sitwits will be able to see it. Everyone who does this helps get the word out about the show. And you can also do that by leaving a five-star review and a nice comment on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. This helps other people find the show and allows us to grow. And also... I've got a target on Joe Rogan's back, and I want to catch him on the podcast charts at some point. Thanks again to Strava for supporting the show. Visit strava.com slash summit and use promo code Sidious, C-I-T-I-U-S, all lowercase, when purchasing an annual Summit subscription, and you'll receive the Sidious Mag podcast listener exclusive discount. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running. And don't forget... Even if the mileage is getting tough, even if it's getting really difficult to get out in the cold weather, legs are feeling good.